Good to see everybody. I know some of you were here last week. What a great Easter service it was. Um, we're glad to have you back if you were here for the first time last week. Um, if you were here prior to that, you know we've been studying Ephesians for a long time. And today, we're going to study the church in Ephesus, but not in the book of Ephesians. So I'm really excited about that. Um, the title of this message is, Where Are They Now? I wanted to maybe call it the sequel, but the sequels are often disappointing, and I didn't want that to be disappointing. So I went with, Where Are They Now? So let's stand to our feet. We're going to read Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from the ESV, so if you're not there, it'll sound a little different. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among us, among the seven golden lampstands. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your timeless living word. Uh, you are your word. You are the only created, not created, I guess, you've always been. You're the only thing that has ever done everything he's ever said. We stand on your word as truth. We desire to learn from it and grow from it. You are intimately aware of what each of us listening today online and in this room need. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would get what we need today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So this letter, um, or this book, was written in 90 A.D., 95, 96 A.D. And where we were with Ephesus was written in 62 A.D. Okay, so a little bit of a history lesson here, because I think as we're studying the Bible, it's important to remember that it was written to people at a certain place at a certain time, and that's going to help us understand the context. So in, in Ephesus, another reminder, even though we've been doing this for a few months, we really broke the book into two sections. We broke it into chapters 1 and 3, which was really the, the, the why and the what. What, hap what did Christ do and why did he do it? And then the second part was the therefore, okay? Therefore, we should live a certain way. And I love that, that Lance um, and the Spirit inspired Lance to, to, to kind of start our next chapter as a church with that. Um, I love that. I love that if, as you think about what you've known so far with Lance as our senior leader is he's taken us back to what we're about, why we're about that, and how we should live. So that was written from jail in 62 AD. 
And then this book was written on the island of Patmos um, around 95, 96. And I love the fact that, that God did this, you know, because we get snippets in Scripture. But as Christians, we know this is like one continuous story. So we get to have the, the I, I called it the where are, we, where are they now moment. You know, how are they doing? You know, you, uh, I, I follow a lot of athletes over the years, and sometimes the story is good and interesting and better, and sometimes it's like, oh, no. Like, I, I stumbled upon a guy I played against um, in college. I, I just, I wonder what he's doing now. And I'm like, uh-oh, this guy's in jail. I'm like, wow, that's kind of sad. And then there's other people who are in different places, and they're, you know, they're in good places. And so, like, the where are they now matters, because it's kind of like we learn from what they did, and... And now, like, where, where, are, where are they? How are they doing? So Revelation gets us that, gives us that. And um, it's, it's, it's different, though, okay? The letter from, for Ephesians was Paul writing to this church. And Revelation, this is Jesus telling John, the disciple whom he loved, that's what John called himself and John, to write this down and tell this church. It's cool. It's different. So we get the where are we now from Jesus. Do you feel the weight of that? That's kind of different. Hey, Holy Spirit, inspire Paul to write this letter. Jesus, John, write this down and give him this message. It feels a little different. I think that's cool. As we start to jump into this, though, I want to frame Revelation a bit. Um, first of all, I want to read you something from the first chapter. So if you have your Bible, you can, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. You don't have to stand up for this. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You can say God bless you when somebody sneezes, but God said bless you when you read this aloud, bless you when you hear, and bless you when you keep what's written in this. So, I love that just reading the book of Revelation aloud brings a blessing to us. So in our house, Allison and I have spent like the last year really studying Revelation. Um, and my heart here is not to overemphasize one book of the Bible, okay? Because you can do that. And this book is very important, but every other canonical book is important. At the same time, I feel like because of what has happened with Revelation, um, it sometimes doesn't get read because it can seem a little scary. Like, I remember as a kid, my mom had this, this, like, book, and then it had, like, the pictures of the people falling into the pit and all that kind of stuff. Have you seen that book? You guys probably all have seen that. That's kind of scary. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know if I want to read that one. Like, can I learn in other books? Can I read the Psalms when I'm mad and feel like it's okay to be mad because David got mad? And let's just do that instead. But as we've been studying this, it's like I'm compelled to emphasize it a bit because it's been underemphasized or we've been spooked away from it a little bit. 
for whatever reason. One author says it this way. He says, the more I study eschatology, the more I see how it always is fundamentally Christocentric, Christ-centered, and Messiah-exalting. It breaks my heart to see the extent to which prophecy is turned into newspaper exegesis and fear-mongering conspiratorial sensationalism. Sensationalism. There's some big words for us. But doesn't, isn't that what happens? Like if you've been serving Christ for decades, how many antichrists have you seen already? Right? And I'm not picking on anybody that has said or felt that. I'm just saying that can be a deterrent to studying this book. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. The, the more that Allison and I have studied it, the more we've been blown away and come to see it as, wow, it's been 60 years since Jesus died. And now he sends this angel to John saying, write this down. And now John's kind of seen this like we watch YouTube videos, right? Okay, write this down. And then John watches what happens and write this down. And then I saw is some of the things that John says. And then I saw, and then he wrote this down, communicate this. So it's not like a linear book. You know, it, it's very here and there. Um, it's, it's eschatological. It's prophetic. It's, it's, um, it's a lot of things, okay? And it, but, but, but one of the things that I want you to leave here with is it's worthy, worthy of being read aloud, and it's worthy of your study. So if you've avoided it, please come back to it. See it as a revelation of your Savior uh, for, for your growth and for your edification. Um, there's also a, a lot of ways uh, to interpret what's in here. And that can be hard, too. Um, there's a view that says this is all like history, it's all been. Some of these destructive things that were described happened in 70 AD, and that's all over. Um, so there's, there's a view that we're in the middle of the millennial reign right now, which is described in Revelation, and, and that it ain't going to get any worse. So as you're leaning and studying and learning, um, my, I would encourage you to have leanings on this versus a dogmatic, I know that I know that I know. Um, and, and, and so um, as we get into studying this, um, First, know that this was written, as I said before, to a specific audience for a specific time. Um, but also know, and I'm going to borrow from verse 7 here, what we read, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Therefore, it applies to us. Because God knew we'd be reading this now and, and learning from this now. So let's jump in with that kind of starting point. Let's jump into verse 1 and, and, and plow through this together. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. Okay, so here, this is, this is we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about something that Jesus is, is bringing. And the, the messenger angel here, like, like the Greek translation for angel is messenger. So getting too bent around, was it an angel? Who, who got this message to the Ephesian church? I think it's important to see it's a messenger, and the message got to the church, okay? That's most important. Um, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus, you have done a lot well. 
Remember the time, this guy, Nero? Like, he, he, there was a thing about him that was bad. <laughs> like, all of the things about him. And the church in Ephesus came up in that. And then uh, at, when John's writing, it's Domitian. And one of the things that marked the end of Domitian's reign was a similar kind of thing, heavy persecution. Verse 2, Jesus is saying, you guys, you, 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 you worked hard. You've hung in there. You've persevered. And, and so they have, they have built their effort around sound doctrine that they were given. Doctrine is a set of beliefs. So they believe this thing. They live by it. Great job. Verse 3, you persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. Uh, there's a phrase in sports we use. We say, he's a grinder. One of, the, one of the favorites was a welder. Man, what do welders do? They show up and do the job every day, and the work they do, like, people can stand on it. People can drive cars across it. Like, man, they, they got it done. So when I read those verses, it's like, I think, grinders. Like, man, Ephesus, the believers there, they hung in there. They were faithful, they were willing to suffer, and they're not weary. They're keeping themselves built up. Verse 4 says, Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So what's the concern Christ has for this church? They've lost their first love. What's the first love? We talked about this. Some of you that were here know this message was coming because we talked about it during a transition one week. Um, the first love can be described as your love for Christ, but it also is your love for people. Maundy Thursday brought us what? Not just something to do before Good Friday, but a new commandment that Jesus says that you love one another as I have loved you. Mark 12, 29 through 34, uh, Jesus says the most important, hear this, O Israel, Love the Lord your God. The Lord is one. And you shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So to love the Lord and love your neighbor is the most important thing. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he cannot love, and whom he has seen and cannot love God whom he has not seen. So first love, of course, is God. But it also is how that is reflected to your neighbor. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So what does that mean? Jesus is loving enough to bring the truth to them. (laughs) Sometimes the most loving thing we need is to hear the truth. It's one good reason to get married. He or she knows you. They'll, They'll tell the truth, right? Yeah, they will. So be real, consider how far you've fallen, but then the door, repent, turn. And then a warning, if you don't, your lampstand is removed. What that basically means is, I'm not with you. Apostate is a word given for that, no more lampstand. I'm removing my presence from you. Very clear. 
Verse 6, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus comes back here to one more thing that they were doing well. Uh, the Nicolaitans, they had to look that up. Uh, Acts 6, 5, we learn about um, Nicholas. He was one of the, the, the deacons who were appointed when the apostles had all this revival going on and they were too busy and they, they put these people in charge of other things. Nicholas was one of them, Okay. Well, Nicholas got back into Gnosticism, got back into uh, 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 an incomplete gospel, and he had people following him. Um, and so that created a problem. And Jesus is saying, I see that you hate that. I see that you hate um, this false teaching that Nicholas is following. So he's kind of bringing them back to, to something that they're doing right. And then he closes again and says, whoever has ears, verse 7, let them hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, again, this applies to all of us now. So, how do we apply this? Um, man, there's a lot. There's just so many, in these, so many things in these verses to unpack. Um, my first application point is a point of preparation. Okay? How do we prepare for what's to come? Um, how do we prepare for what's happening? Well, one way to prepare is to recognize false teachers have been around forever. Our only way to know false teachers is to know what's in here and to be bonded in love with others who know what's in here. So the best first step is to know what the Lord has taught you and to surround yourself with people who, who believe that. Because false teachers, false prophets aren't new, and they ain't going to stop. If Christ returns in the next five years, that'll, that'll make it stop. But at that, up until that point, it's going to continue. So we've got to know the truth. Bankers know what fake bills are um, because they know what the real bill is. They know what the real thing is. There's a million ways to make a fake. There's only one way to make the real. Jesus is the real. So we have to know him. We have to know him more. So prepare by knowing what's in there. The other thing, again, is to have an openness to wherever your theology lands around what's, what's to come. Here's what I mean by that. If you have a belief that I had for a number of years, which is that when it gets real bad, we're going to be raptured out of here, um, I would ask you to open your mind on that front. Okay, because it's real bad in a lot of places right now. It's really bad in a lot of places. Maybe not where we are. Um, it's, been, it's been a rough year. We can all agree with that. But I, I would say um, it's not been rough like it's in Iran right now. It's not been rough like it is in China right now. And so um, to have a theology, to have a set of beliefs that puts you in this corner of it's going to be, I'm going to go along like I've been going along, and then one day Jesus is going to take me um, in, in the second coming, that might happen, and I like that. <laughs> um, but, but if that doesn't happen, are you ready? I'd say this past year has been a little bit of a test on that front. I feel like the enemy has brought this confusion, this division to families and churches, and, 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 and it's caused us, like, like, we're so reactionary. It's so easy to put some stranger on Twitter in their place because I got the truth, and they say some junk, and I just say, bam, type, 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 send. 
tweet sent. What just happened there? Nothing happened there. I didn't do anything. I expressed my uh, partially misinformed opinion on something to a stranger I'll never talk to. But yet we get satisfaction from that. And Satan loves that. So this, this past year has been full of situations like that where our, our, our preferences are attacked, our conveniences are changed, our things we want to do are, are, are all of a sudden like taken away from us, and we're mad about it. And I am really cautious to call that persecution when I know about what's happening in Iran and China and other places in the world. So I beg you to have room for the idea that it could get a little harder. Because if you're open to that, you'll be more ready for that. And you'll know other people around you that can say, I'm ready with you. I got your back. If you show up at practice thinking you're going to run uh, 20 ladders and your coach only makes you run three, hey, that's great. If you show up, you're thinking you're running three and you got 20, that's bad news. And that's a really small example, but I hope it drives home the point of being open to, to what, what may have been different. And I'm telling you guys, my, up until the last year, I've been a rapture guy. I've really operated under this belief that we're just going to be out of here when it gets real hard. I don't think that anymore. And I, we could talk about that at a different time. I think it's going to be a little bit hard before, before Christ comes back. I think there's going to be more standing, maybe more standing alone <laughs> in situations. More of me looking around saying, are you a believer? I mean, where are you at with this? Because if you're with me, I'm with you, and this is what I'm about. Um, and the great thing is that's what God wants us to do, and that's how the first century church existed, with joy, not with fear. They didn't walk around saying, oh, this could get really bad. It was bad, and they were marked by their joy and their love for each other. So we're not doing something new. We're not doing something that hasn't been done. We're not doing something that God hasn't called us to or hasn't called others to. So be, be open to that. Um, and I would also, as you're thinking about preparing and being ready, readiness, readiness. Um, uh, if I've heard Allison say this once, I've heard her say it a thousand times, steadied and readied, steadied and readied. I want a steady church, and I want a ready church. You know, again, sorry about the sports analogies, but it just comes out of me. You know, in, in, in a volleyball court, if these girls are out there and she's coaching and they're standing like this, or they got their hands on their feet, you're not ready. You may be steady. You're not going to fall over, but you ain't ready for the ball because your hands are here. Same thing with, you know, basketball. Get your head back. Get, your, get on your toes. You're not ready to move. You're steady, but you're not ready. So we've got to be both as a church, and we have to figure out what that means, what that means to you. And the only way to truly steady and ready is to know what's here. Biblical literacy, uh, friends, brothers, sisters, it is so down. It is so down. And, the, and we live in the age of, like, unmitigated information. You can learn anything about everything. I butchered a pig yesterday. First time with a pig. This great guy shows up to help. And this is what he said. He said, um, he said this has become uh, my wheelhouse. And he said, I watched a video. And I said, okay. You watched a video and this is your wheelhouse? But that's what we think right now, 
right? Like we're YouTube experts on everything. And there's all these things we think we want to do. We want to learn. We want to grow. And, and I, I'm like, I, I, I'm more aware than ever that I'm not an expert, that I have to learn. Um, but at the same time, like this, this is where we've got to become experts. We've got to find a way to grow. And wherever you are with this, apply the 1% rule. Apply the 1% rule. What's the 1% rule? Do a little bit more each day. You know, it's like dieting. You can't go from, like, you know, eating 10 candy bars to zero without, like, this isn't going to work. i gotta, I got to titrate down. Maybe, I guess maybe you can do that, but it's going to be hard. On the other way, add 10 minutes. Add 15 minutes. Say no to something else so you can say yes to this. That will build that muscle. That will create a flex opportunity for you. Um, and what I mean by flex opportunity is you're going to build that strength, that confidence, that not only you can do it, but then pretty soon you're going to have an appetite for it. And the more you know about this, the more you realize you don't know. And the, the beautiful thing about it is that doesn't shame or condemn you. It whets your appetite to say, I, do, I want to know more. This is the most amazing story in the world. They keep jamming Star Wars on us, and it's like we want more and more and more. And like, it's because it's a great story that never ends. And like this always is and always was, and it's never going to end. And this guy loves you the way you are in all your mess. And uh, I won't say more about Star Wars because I do kind of like it. But. So prepare. That's the prepare piece. Number two, return to our first love in Christ. Um, I was thinking about how to communicate this. And I love music. I love, love, love music. So I picked three songs. I'm sure they're familiar to you. Um, Good Friday, we sang The Wonderful Cross. Um, I almost can't sing this without getting choked up, but it says, come and die and find that I might truly live. That's one of my favorite lyrics in that song. Come and die and find that I might truly live. We're talking about Christ, whose death means we can all live. And then from there, we can start life in a way that we never knew because of what he did. So as part of our daily sanctification, this has to be like a daily thing we give attention to. How am I going to die daily today? How am I going to die to myself today? Um, so that song means so much. And I think part of returning to our first love is being willing to die to ourselves and follow his example and, and, and truly live the way he lives. Uh, the next song was inspired by Lance's message last week when he uh, referenced um, John 20, verse 16. And it's when, when Mary was there and, and Jesus just said her name. Mary, and then she realized, oh, this is you. <laughs> and so that song is, is turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Man, those first century Christians had to be living on that. They had to be living on that fact. We see it in, 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 in the Mary example. Everything changed. She's trying to fix this and fix that, and where have you taken him, and can we just have his body? Mary, and all of her attention went to him, and everything changed. Everything changed in that moment. So how do we go about making part of our normal routine beholding him for who he is? I don't know how you do that, but I know we need to do it. I know you have to do it. The last song is, is All to Jesus I Surrender. Um, I Surrender All is another one, um, another way to say that. Um, um, and, and, I, and I, I love this, like, the idea of surrendering all 
means a lot because we like and we love and we need control. You know, we like control. That's part of like one of the silver linings of, of, of quarantine life is like there's less to worry about, right? So like that speaks to our desire to have a little bit of control. Um, and I love this quote from Tim Keller. It says, if Jesus didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why would he abandon you now in yours? So as I think about giving up control, surrendering all, I can say he could have abandoned me then. That was way harder. He could have called a legion of angels and said, that's enough. <laughs> Crush them, smush them. I'm not going to do this. But he didn't. He finished it. He didn't abandon us then. So I can surrender to that kind of a God, that kind of a Savior, who I behold, who surrendered all for me. Last application point. Return to our first love, the people side. This is a lot easier said than done, right? I, um, I mean, I, I submit this idea to you. It would be a lot easier to be a Christian if it wasn't for other Christians. Like sometimes don't they just make you mad? And like non-Christians, like they really make you mad sometimes. But like that's just not how it worked. Like the king of glory uh, came down as a man. He could have been the one to walk alone. He could have stayed holy on his own. He could have not needed people. But instead, he surrounded himself with 12 dudes that didn't have it together. The furthest thing from it. Have you guys been watching the Chosen series? So good, so good. Big, heart, heartily commending that to you. But one of the things that's, that, that it's been fun to see is how they play the Matthew and Peter characters. And I'm not saying it's biblical, these little isms that, that, that those two characters have. But I get the big idea that those two, they came from different sides of town. So not only did Jesus come down and surround himself with these 12 guys, he pulled in people that had a different take on the world. And he knew we're going to like bicker and go after each other and disagree. As a parent, I mean, what drives you, what, what's more maddening is to have your kids arguing, right? Jesus willingly stepped into that because he wanted to model the value of life and community. He subjected himself to that. So as hard as it is, as, as mindful that we are, that it isn't going to go smooth all the time, we have to embrace it with love. 75-year-old Harvard study, this is like one of the longest, longest longitudinal studies ever conducted. And what a longitudinal study is, it's where they use the same measurement of the same things over and over again. 75 years long, they found that the greatest predictor of happiness in your life and health is your, in your life is the quality of your relationships, the greatest predictor. Intuitively, you know that. You know that. We connected with some friends yesterday and got a text message when they got home. That was so fun seeing you guys again. It was so fun seeing you again and hanging out. Can we do it again soon? Like, we get fullness of, of, of soul, our bodies, our happiness when we connect with people. So this study confirms what, what Jesus is trying to teaching and what, teach us and what we know. He also made two points. He said, he said there, there's two foundational elements 
to functioning well in relationship. The first is to love, and the other is to find a way to cope with life that doesn't push love away. Cancel culture, anybody? You don't say what I think you should say. Done. Delete. Unfriend. Disconnect. Hang up. You got something hanging in your yard. You got something on your car. So I'm supposed to love this person, but what I perceive them to be about or what they've told me they're about makes me say I got to push them away. The Bible teaches us to press through that. The 75-year-old study says if you press through this, you will find a way to have happiness and fullness in your life. So another aspect of the story that I want to quote here, it says, how safe you feel sharing with one another thinks the extent to which you can relax and be seen for who you truly are and how for who you truly are and how truly you see one another. This is love. Like, don't we all want to be seen and known? Don't we all want to be seen and loved as we're known? Uh, we heard uh, Pastor Jonathan Wiggins from Colorado teach on this recently. He's out of Res Church in Colorado. He said to be fully known and fully loved is what we desire. This is how Jesus loves you. He came to you in your mess. He said, I love you. He didn't say clean up and come to church. He said, I love you right where you are. This is what we want from other people. But what's the most terrifying thing in relationships? To be fully known and not loved. To be fully known and not loved. And that's not just me or you. It's all of us. That's part of why we keep masks. It's part of why we, we hide things. It's part of why we don't want to be fully sharing with others. So, like, as you think about loving people, and I'm not saying, like, you... you I'm going to call everybody up to the front of the church and say, hey, to be really known, you've got to come here and spill all your greatest secrets. I'm not saying that. But I am saying within your marriage, within your friend circle, getting deep and sharing with people you trust and you can be fully known with, that desire is there. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it's there. And the call to live that way is there from your Savior. So that is my encouragement around how we can, can, can fully love and be known and, and love others. Um, the last thing I want to say about loving others is uh, one speaker said, or one uh, teacher said it this way. He said, if God repeats something, you probably want to pay attention. John 13, 35 says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, John 13, 34, John 15, 12, John 15, 17, Romans 12, Romans 13, 8, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Galatians 5, 13, Ephesians 4, 2, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, 1 Peter 1, 22, 1 John 3, 11, 2 John 1, 5. I didn't count them, but you get the idea. That's not all of them. They all say, love one another, love one another, love one another. We have got to learn to love one another. I don't know what that looks like exactly for you, but I know that your life has got to exhibit that. So the beautiful thing about our God is, is he has humbled himself to the point of death. He asks you to live a life of confession and repentance because of his example. So as the musicians come, I, I, wanna, I guess I want to challenge you to have the hard question, have the hard conversation with him 
as Dave talked earlier, like he wants to hear your heart. He wants to hear from you. He wants to commune with you. And so as you're able to say to him, where, where am I holding back in relationship? Where am I holding back in putting myself out there? Show me. Who should I trust? Lead me, Lord. Lead me to those people that I should pull into my circle and share my heart with. I acknowledge my desire to be fully known. I, I, I acknowledge my desire to be fully loved. We all want that. This pastor, uh, Jonathan Wiggins, used um, the word attachment and authenticity. Okay? Like a little baby, like he shared that if a baby isn't held, they don't attach. Mothers know this. Dads, you probably learned this or were taught this. You don't know this intuitively. A mother doesn't have to be taught this. They just know it. That baby's crying. Pick it up. Husband says, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's saying it wants to be left alone. No, it's not saying that. It's never saying that. It's saying, hold me. Mothers know this. We all want that attachment. So to be willing to know that as a 47-year-old guy, as a 50-year-old guy, as a 6-year-old guy, as a 16-year-old kid, whatever it is, that there may be some measure of attachment hurt in your heart that you just want to tell God about, he knows. But as you acknowledge it, he'll enter into that space. He'll lead you to where you need to go. And the last part is the authenticity part. Real, real, real. We, we used to say real people living in a real world serving a real God. That's a beautiful thing to say. It's a hard thing to live, but we got to do it. So as we go to worship here, if you'd stand with me. I want to give you a chance to respond in prayer. And so maybe bow your heads and close your eyes. Um, and and if, if you're here and you would say, I don't know Jesus as my Savior, I want to give a call for that right now. And I'm going to, I'm going to pray with you if that's you. So if that's you, say, I don't know Christ is my Savior, but I want to today. Would you raise your hand? And if you're here and you would say now that I, I get this. I want to return to my first love. I want to give Christ more in my life. Or I want to love people better. Like I, I'm not doing that well. Or I'm doing it well and I feel like they're not loving me back. And I'm getting weary. I'm getting weary. I want this real, I want real love. I want love that is built on doctrine, yes, but also rooted in a love for people. If that's you, raise your hand. Thank you, Father. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that your story goes on. I'm grateful for this inspired word to a church that needed encouragement, and also needed to be reminded that that love and action and hard work, or that, that that doctrine and action and hard work and perseverance is not enough if it's not undergirded by a love for you and a love for people. So, Holy Spirit, as we worship now, this last song before we close, I ask you to move in our midst. I ask you to bring hope to that person who feels this is just so much to bear. 
that was maybe a good message, but man, I don't, I don't know how I can love so-and-so with what he or she's done to me. Lord, get in that place. Or, or that person, Lord, who's saying, I have been loving. I've been loving a long time. And they don't love me back. I ask you to speak to that person. And Lord, I ask you to speak to the person who would just shake their head and say, yes, Jesus, I, I, do, I do want to give you more. I just don't know how to do it. Lord, touch that person's heart. Just like Mary just paused and looked up, I pray that a person who feels like I just described would see your face looking at them, smiling, saying, it's me, I love you. So Holy Spirit, move in our midst. In Jesus' name. It's not easy stuff, but man, we can do it with joy. We can do it with hope. He will lead us. He will surround us. I just want to praise our kids for a minute. I need to hear a pin drop in here. These kids are so well behaved. Even when they have fun, they do it on mute. I know they're having fun. So thank you, parents. I love having them in the room. Our benediction is from Ephesians 3 today, so let's raise our hands for that as we close. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back next week.